Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Welcome Radio. to another edition of Legal Face Off here on WGN. We are high atop the WGN Tower, Tina. Looking out at a relatively beautiful day here in downtown Chicago. It is. It's cold, but it's clear and it's sunny. Very clear. We are not with our uh, trusty host, Sam Penianovich. Who is stuck in an airport. Yes, he is. So we've got Ben Anderson behind the glass. My name is Rich Lenkov. Tina Martini is here as well. And our first guest today is Dr. G. Terry Madonna to talk to us about the Trump impeachment trial and also some other goings-on in national politics. Uh, Dr. Madonna, even though you told us to call you Terry, you (laughs) earned your PhD, so we're going to call you Doctor. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. uh, It's a pleasure to chat with you all. So obviously a significant week in the House impeachment inquiry. News coming out of Washington today is that the House released their report. Uh, The White House, of course, said they would not participate on Wednesday, tomorrow, when the committee questions legal experts about whether there are grounds to impeach Trump. This is all while Trump is in London, of course, for NATO meetings and on his way out yesterday said that that should be case over in referencing his conversation with the Ukrainian president. Uh, today, during the press conferences he had with the national leaders, uh, he again said that this case is over and there's nothing more to it. So. Where do you, as a keen observer of these proceedings, think we will be by the end of this week on the impeachment hearings? Any any progress? Well, I think what we're going to hear from the four legal scholars uh, tomorrow when the House Judiciary Committee convenes its public hearing, and three of the four were picked by Democrats, and they're likely to lay the groundwork, uh, constitutional groundwork for impeachment. The fourth individual, Jonathan Turley, a uh, law professor, He has publicly been very critical of the process so far. So I think at the end of the day, the House Judiciary Committee, the Democrats on it, will, will, who knows for sure, but it looks like they'll be prepared to move impeachment articles. Now, what we don't know yet is how long the Judiciary Committee will, will hold the public hearings. Will they have sessions later in the week? Not likely, but... Here's the dilemma. Next week is probably the final week the Judiciary Committee can consider impeachment articles because they want to get a full House vote, that is the Democrats, by the third week because they don't want to push off impeachment in the House into the new year for reasons that we can talk about. So my hunch is that we're going to have articles of impeachment adopted adopted by the house by the judiciary committee if not by the end of the week by certainly the end of next week and the likelihood that they'll call some additional witnesses looms large do you want to share with our listeners what the concern is with pushing it out too far for the oh, democrats sure. that's very easy here here's the situation until today when senator kamala harris dropped out The Democrats have six. Now they have five U.S. senators that are seeking the Democratic nomination. The last thing the Democrats want is to push impeachment articles over to the Senate for a trial where the Republicans who control the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, Senator McConnell, are likely to hold a trial and to push it week after week after week after week as we get close to the February 3rd Iowa caucuses and then the New Hampshire primary. So in other words, you'd have five, now five, five Democratic senators who are tied up in D.C. in a trial, not out on the stump, so to speak, campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire. So the Democrats want to, want to move this very quickly. In fact, they would have preferred... To have the vote before Thanksgiving and to move it ahead, but now it looks like they'll, if they can get it done by the end of next week, out of the Judiciary Committee, uh, onto the Senate for the onto the full House by the third week, and and th- there you go. It's still much later than the Democrats would have preferred. Doctor, you do a lot of commentating, obviously, all across the country on on various issues, including this one, and I'm curious. 
your feelings on this idea of censure versus impeachment. Yeah. Many have called on, on both sides of the equation have called for a censure right. as a uh, measure, maybe a compromise measure short sure. of impeachment. Explain to us what censure is and what are the yeah. merits of doing that versus a full impeachment trial. Well, censure there's not censure is not in the U.S. Constitution. There's not that word does not appear. Well, impeachment does in three different articles of the U.S. Constitution. It lays out the process, the reasons, who's involved in it. Censure literally has been used to reprimand, and that's that's the way to think about censure. Reprimand, reprimand, reprimand. It has, in a sense, no legal consequence at all. A censure is a reprimand. Only one president in American history has been censured, Andrew Jackson. Back in the 1830s, in a situation involving the Second Bank of the United States, and then later, when his party regained control of the Senate, they expunged it. So no president has been censured. A censure is merely, as I indicated before, a reprimand. It has no legal consequence at all. The president would continue to do his job as he's been doing it, or who knows, with President Trump, he could do it differently. But you get the point. Whereas impeachment... If he gets impeached in the House, and that looks very, very likely, uh, if he gets impeached, if President Trump gets impeached in the House, but does not get convicted in a trial in the Senate, he would continue to serve out his term. No president has been removed from by by a conviction on impeachment articles in the United States Senate. We've had two presidents actually impeached, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, but neither were convicted in the Senate. And by the way, they, uh, you know, they uh, they continue to serve out their terms as as you would as you would expect, as I indicated. But here's what censure does: what censure does is allow Democrats who don't want to, you know, there are 31 House members, 31 who are in districts won by President Trump, 10 of them President Trump won by double digits. So the leaders of the House have to be a little nervous about the congressional elections obviously coming up next year, and that allows them to vote uh, a reprimand. And who knows, you could even get Republicans, some Republicans who say, I don't want to impeach the president, but what he did was improper. So you could say a reprimand would cite the president's improper behavior, but not remove him. So that might even have some appeal to Republicans. In other words, in a word, bipartisan. Terry, impeachment is clearly a political issue. Do you think that there is the political will today to impeach the president, especially so close to the election? Right. Well, here's what's fascinating. About 48, 49 percent of of the voters in our country say they support impeachment. About 43, 44% say no. Now, you'll get some polls that will show a majority say impeach and remove, but here's what's fascinating. If you go and look at the trend line back several months, literally there's almost no change. It's flat. 48, 49% say, and guess what? Of the 48, 49%, we're looking at 84, 85% of Democrats who say, yes, impeach, impeach, impeach. But only 12, 13% of Republicans say impeach. In other words, it's been remarkable the stability over all of the aspects of impeachment that have played out in the United States Congress and throughout the country as a whole. And there's been virtually no change. In fact, the impeachment activities have hardened the opinions of the voters, Republicans saying no, Democrats saying yes. We should mention to our listeners that you know polls. You were the uh, founder of the Keystone Poll, which was later named the Franklin and Marshall College Poll. You're also the pollster for a variety of Pennsylvania um, media outlets, yeah. Yeah, including the Philadelphia Daily News. Yeah. So just ter- talking about Pennsylvania, which obviously you know very well as well, um, you know, you've got a key state that you are yep. in in Pennsylvania. Um, looking forward to the elections that are just in front of us. Right. What does Trump and the eventual Democrat yeah. nominee have to do to win your state? And how do you think that would be a harbinger yeah. of the general election? 
Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, President Trump won the presidency because his campaign developed what we call the Rust Belt strategy, going after working-class voters. These are voters who don't have high school educations, most of whom live in areas both in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan, where once the ancestors of these folks worked in the great industries, coal, iron, steel, and, and, and others, and that campaign was a harbinger, if you will, of the support base for President Trump and conversely the opposition. So President, the Democrats have to reach out and try to win over more of the working class voters which have moved away from them over the last couple of decades. For Republicans, on the other hand, they have to do something about the loss of support in the suburbs. 2018, election. The Democrats picked up 40 seats. I'm talking about the elections last year, the midterm elections, many of them in suburban districts. The suburbs, large numbers of voters, particularly college-educated voters, millennials who make up that that composition in in these burbs. So really what I'm looking at here, both in PA and Michigan and uh, Wisconsin, to be sure, and to some extent, Florida, the, the fourth of the big states that we're looking at carefully is, which set of voters get motivated? Is it the working class or is it the suburban voters that I just mentioned, particularly college-educated women who have moved away from the Republicans and now support the Democrats in larger percentages than in recent years? So it's kind of a chess game. Can the Republicans pick up support in the suburbs, which they've been losing, and can the Democrats, on the other hand, do something about the working-class voters in rural and small-town America and rural and small-town Pennsylvania, which they've been losing over the last couple of decades, and which voters are motivated? And remember, we're still, you know, not, not, not almost nine months away from the election. What's the health of the economy? Trump's strongest argument for re-election is the health of the economy. Will it remain strong? Will we go into recession? Will we have a foreign policy crisis? Who's the Democratic nominee going to be of the 15 candidates that remain? And so there's a number of unanswered questions right now. You cannot rule out that Trump can't win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin again. I'm not saying he will. I'm just saying you can't rule it out uh, you can't rule it out, and it's a, a you know a process that we're going to have to see unfold before our eyes. Doctor, before we let you go, I assume you're an Eagles fan. I can't help but rub in the fact that the <laughs> oh, Eagles gosh. this past weekend lost to the lowly Dolphins. I know, wasn't that pitiful? Yet I the mean, Bears, the yeah, they do have some injuries. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm but the Chicago Eagles Bears, fan. who you guys knocked out in the playoffs, <laughs> I was at the double doink game, so I'm happy to see the Bears are on a winning streak. Eagles are on a losing streak. Dr. Terry Madonna, he is the director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and Marshall College. Thank you very much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Next, Tina, we are tackling a really hot issue in the news with James Cemetero. James is co-chair of the Media and Entertainment Group 
at Pryor Cashman. He opened up the Miami office and was named recently the Lawyer of the Year in Miami's entertainment area uh, by Best Lawyers. James, you split your time between Miami and L.A. Welcome to the show here in Chicago. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. James, you're a nationally recognized entertainment lawyer and have been following the recent case involving Taylor Swift, Scooter Braun, and her former record label, Big Machine, which has been getting a lot of press lately. The story begins last year when Taylor Swift decided to leave the label and sign up with Universal. Fast forward to a few weeks ago when Swift tweeted that her former label might prohibit her from performing her old songs at the American Music Awards, which was honoring her as Artist of the Decade. Can you tell our listeners more about what led to this breakdown between Swift and her former label and what the issues were? Sure. One point of correction. So Scooter actually wasn't Taylor's manager. He is, he's just a megawatt manager who has managed Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Demi Lovato, among others. So the real breakup, and this started in June of last year, was when Taylor left Big Machine Records, which was owned by Scott Bochetta. So she signed with Big Machine when she was about 15, maybe 16 years old, released her first six albums uh, with Big Machine, trusted Scott Bochetta Immensely, they had a very mutually beneficial relationship. She was up for renegotiation. The parties tried to extend that agreement. There was a kind of a belief that Scott wanted to sell Big Machine, and Taylor's obviously the crown jewel. It made up about 80% of their revenues. So the negotiation, according to industry reports, and this seems to be well verified, was Taylor wanted to own her masters and her next deal. And the deal that Big Machine offered her was what's known as a one-for-one deal. We will give you the right to each album, the masters for each of your predecessor albums, upon your provision of a new album. And Taylor ultimately rejected that deal, knowing that it would probably lead to a sale of Big Machine because they would have the right to four or five additional albums. So ultimately, she, as you indicated, signed with Universal. And then the relationship became very toxic and very public when it was announced that Big Machine had sold Uh, all of its holdings, including the first six albums of Taylor Swift, to a company, uh, Ithaca Holdings, that's going to be controlled and is controlled by Scooter Braun. So, James, explain to our listeners who maybe aren't as um, practiced in intellectual property law how an artist like Taylor Swift can write her own songs and perform her own songs yet not be able to actually perform them. Sure. So she actually could be able to perform, and that's kind of one of the big kind of misgivings and maybe the mis- one of the bigger disconnects as it relates to the AMA. So it is common, I think maybe this will answer your question, it's not entirely uncommon, in fact, it's probably the norm, that most artists, with Jay-Z, Janet Jackson, Frank Ocean, Rihanna being among the handful of exceptions of artists who don't own their masters. And if you look at the way the record label historically and kind of even continuing to this day works is record labels invest in unproven talent, unproven commodities. They put a lot of money into those artists and they try to make them into famous, successful artists. Sometimes it works. A lot of times it does not work. So in many instances, the stars, the Taylor Swift of the world are paying for all the artists who just didn't make it for whatever reason, not for lack of talent, but they just didn't never got their day in the sun. So, The record labels invest a lot of money. As a consequence, the historical model has been that they own the masters. And with the ownership of the masters comes the rights to do certain things that may be at the expense of the artist. Uh, Taylor Swift is somewhat unique, though, in that she is a, a writer of many of her songs. And as a consequence of being a writer, she maintains... A publishing interest, which actually gives her more shared power than most artists would have. The flashpoint um, was there's obviously some white knuckle negotiation uh, that's been going on, and Taylor indicated that she was being precluded from performing her works at the what the recent uh, AMA awards. The Big Machine and Scooter Braun have de- denied that. Some documents leaked out that indicated that maybe there's. Uh, conflicting sides or conflicting truths as to what was being going on. But as a general rule, even if you own the masters, you cannot prohibit an artist from publicly performing their works. The issue with the AMAs was how was that performance going to be recorded with the concern, for example, of being could 
it'd be recorded, posted on YouTube, then be made available. And in that circumstances, or if the producer of the AMA's Dick Clark Productions was to somehow release an album or maybe even an audiovisual work, like a DVD of, of the performance, then technically you're, you're getting to what may be a violation of a re-recording restriction that would be contained in Taylor's recording agreement. So, James, pre-internet, separating out an artist's rights versus those retained by the record label was a lot simpler than it is today, where music is streamed much of the time. How does living in the streaming age impact the rights of an artist and what they retain in their music and their ability to enforce those rights? It's a great question. In, in some instances, some of the overarching rights remain the same. What what I think one of the bigger changes in the, in the post-internet world has become is that artists have become a lot more savvy. And as a consequence of the fact that labels have changed their, their nature, their posture, and what they're able to do for artists, not all artists need to sign with a label. So there's a different dynamic. So with streaming and with the fact that artists, whether through an aggregator or through success on a, a minor league platform like a SoundCloud, which is becoming its own powerful force, an artist doesn't necessarily need the label for things that the label has historically provided, such as uh, the ability to get on the radio, the ability to distribute physical copies of a, a CD or a record, get it into the Walmarts and the targets of the world. So what labels have historically done is not only cultivate artists, make them stars, but actually distribute their product into the marketplace. With the Internet and the democratization of music taste, artists don't necessarily need to have a label. And with that lessening need, there has been a desire to retain more rights. So deals that just were non-existent five years ago, such as a 50-50 split on masters or a controlled share in how your music is utilized, how it's placed, where it's played. Those are becoming more and more, I wouldn't say commonplace, but they're not out of the norm. So those would have been non-starters five years ago. So those are, that's where the dynamics have shifted because of the Internet and because of streaming. Labels have assumed less of a prominence. Artists have been able to learn more about their rights, learn more how to get their music into the marketplace without having to relinquish so much control. James, speaking of technology, and last question here on Legal Faceoff, a lot of this played out on social media, right? I mean, Taylor Swift and Scooter Brown were going back and forth on Tumblr and on um, Instagram and various social media sites, and that resulted in an unprecedented move by Taylor Swift fans. What are they called? Swifties? Yes? Swifties. Swifties to um, exert pressure on Scooter Brown. How much do you think that affects um, modern negotiations versus the letter of the law? It's a great question, and I actually think the most interesting component of the most recent flare-up, the one that occurred on the eve of the AMAs, is the fact that this is power-broking negotiations that are happening in the Instagram world. Both sides started with Big Machine Records in June, have leaked documents, have had screenshots of documents, have been negotiating in the public. So what were previously effective closed-door tactics are really proving almost unreliable and uncontrollable when they're subject to instant global transparency and where those who consume music, such as the Swifties, are invited to almost a virtual sweet seat to the table. And I think that's it, it is a very powerful component of what you're seeing right now, which is where Scooter is somewhat distancing himself from Big Machine Records, because at the end of the day, Scooter is in the business of making money. He's made a substantial investment. He does not want to be viewed as unfriendly to artists. He does represent other A-list artists. So I definitely think he is shifting and trying to, he's certainly already extended an olive branch by saying, let's not let things fester in silence. Let's open the line of communications and have a discussion. And so negotiations, particularly at this level, at the, at the highest stature echelons in the music industry are often prickly. They're just normally done behind closed doors. So this ugliness to leak out and to leak out in a very public way is extraordinarily unprecedented, and I actually think it won't be the first or the last time that you see it. He literally wrote the book on these issues, Film, Band, Multimedia, and the Law. Uh, James Cemetero from Prior Cashman, PriorCashman.com. Thanks so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Please come back. Thank you. Appreciate the time. 
We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. All right, so continuing on on Legal Faceoff, Tina, we've got a really interesting story. Uh, very uh, happy to welcome in Mario Cachero on Legal Faceoff. Mario, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So just to give our listeners some context, in March 2013, here in McHenry County, nearby near where we are, Uh, a couple counties over, a jury convicted you of first-degree murder of your former co-worker, Brian Carrick, who was killed in 2002. You were sentenced to 26 years in prison. Then, in September of 2015, the Illinois Appellate Court overturned your conviction, ruling that, quote, the state's evidence was so unreasonable, improbable, and unsatisfactory that a reasonable doubt exists. How did you survive, Mario, those two years in prison knowing that you had not committed this crime? Well, I just tried to get something accomplished every single day of my incarceration. I uh, worked on my mind, body, and soul. I went to the law library as often as I could and read as much case law as I could and worked out every day. And I prayed every day that the truth would come out and that the person that was responsible for the crime would maybe step forward, knowing that an innocent man is uh, suffering in prison. And generally, I just kept a low profile and uh, respected other inmates and kept to myself. Uh, Menard had a lot of uh, inmates that had no outdate and had exhausted their legal remedies, so uh, it's not exactly a a place that you want to get tangled up with uh, other inmates. So, Mario, the story, of course, gets more interesting in that within 90 days of your release, you took the LSAT and quickly started at Loyola Law School. You just passed the bar this past September and were sworn in as an attorney just a few weeks ago. Did you decide during your time in prison that you wanted to become a lawyer? Was it based on the experience that you had? Absolutely. I realized from my experience just how valuable a criminal defense attorney can be and, uh, felt the best way for me to contribute to society would be as an attorney um, and try to use my experiences and my unique vantage points um, to help potential clients uh, and try to ensure that uh, what happened to me never happens again. Mary, you mentioned you were at Menard Correctional Center down downstate Illinois. You know, we always see in the movies this cliche of prisoners going to the law library and, and learning about their case and studying and petitioning the court. Bring us inside that library and, and, and that prison. How, how does that exactly work? Um, do you actually get unfettered access to the library? Is it, is it you know monitored? How much access do you get to things like Westlaw or Lexis? Explain to our listeners how you can really follow your case and become educated uh, while behind bars. Yeah, uh, we were granted access to the law library once a week for one hour, and that is only if the uh, facility was not on lockdown, which it was probably two-thirds of the time uh, that I was there. But um, I would basically take the whole hour to just print out cases that I I knew I wanted to read and then bring them back to my cell and uh, constantly read them and were you, were you reading about your case or other similar cases? Were you trying to help your attorneys um, build the case to overturn your conviction? Yeah, specifically anything that had to do with felony murder. We had an extremely unique situation because that was the first case, a uh, documented case in the country or any other um, system that uses common law that used intimidation as a predicate felony for murder. So, um, we thought that was a, a overreach by the prosecution, and uh, I tried to just familiarize myself as much as I possibly could with felony murder. 
Mario, you mentioned other uh, inmates at at Bernard, um, and obviously some very you know tough characters. And I assume that everyone, while in prison, asserts their innocence. Maybe that's a cliche, and maybe that's naive. I assume there are some people who you know freely admit that they did the crime, but but you know we always see on TV and the movies that everyone says they're innocent. Um, I assume you met dozens, if not hundreds, of inmates who asserted their innocent innocence. How did that influence um, your journey from being incarcerated to being an attorney, and how is it influencing how you practice law today, knowing that many of the people you met behind bars not only asserted their innocence, innocence but in fact probably were innocent, like you were? I actually would say that maybe 10% of the people there asserted their innocence. Most people uh rather than asserting innocence, are just looking at disproportionate sentencing and issues like that because they've accepted the fact that they're, uh, you know, culpable in their uh, alleged offense. So, hmm. uh, uh, but out of the 10% that alleged innocence, um, you know, I, I felt like maybe five actually had a lot of merit. Um, I was able to help one of uh, the families of uh, a person that I met at Menard, and uh, he was able to secure his release earlier this year. Um, so, and there was about a half dozen people that had been released since since I was released. So, um, it does happen. It's just extremely rare. So, Mario, you're now a practicing attorney. Why don't you tell us about what you're up to now and what you hope to accomplish with your law degree longer term? Uh, I'm going to focus primarily on criminal law and civil rights violations. Uh, I, ideally, I would like to defend the innocent and uh, file lawsuits against corrupt officials that frame people, um, you know, with Brady violations and uh, fabrication of evidence claims uh, specifically. Um, I think that there's certainly a lot of work to be done, and I do know that there are innocent people behind bars. And I will not rest until they are heard, their voices are heard. Mary, we often have people with interesting backgrounds um, on our show talking about the journey they took to become a lawyer. Yours is obviously very unique, and it's a real credit to your perseverance that you helped uh, with your exoneration and ultimately became a practicing lawyer. You're with Durkin and Roberts, DurkinRoberts.com. Thanks so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. We are now at our favorite part of the show, Tina. We have actual live guests in studio, right? Yes, <laughs> they're, they're alive and they're here and they we want to talk to us. Absolutely. got an all-star crew today. First, we've got from the Illinois Commerce Commission, we've got Maria Bocanegra, who is a commissioner with the Illinois Commerce Commission, someone I've known for many years. Thanks so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. And then we've got Ahmed el Genzuri. I've been told I've... Come pretty close to pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> you are Deputy General Counsel at Edward Elmhurst 
healthcare here in uh, just outside of Chicago. Yes. Are you based downtown or out in Elmhurst? Uh, Western suburbs. Yeah. Naperville. Very good. And you and Tina know each other. Yes. 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 Good friends. Old friends. Old Are you going to give us yes. some of the uh, inside scoop on Tina later in the show once we warm up a little? <laughs> yeah, uh, off, off the record. All right, we've got uh, seven topics uh, picked right out of today's headlines. Lots of uh, breaking legal news. But the first one involves a video that was released recently. Uh, it shows a Chicago police officer body slamming um, an individual. And it raised a lot of eyebrows around the city when it was released last week. Uh, the mayor came out and said it was disturbing. Um, Jesse Jackson yesterday, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, said that he's posting bail for the Chicago man who was seen on video being body slammed. Um, the person is named uh, Bernard Kirsch, and he um, was at a bus stop and allegedly drinking, and was stopped by a Chicago police officer. The police officer alleges that this person spit at him, and some of the spit, according to the uh, state's attorney, got into the police officer's mouth. This individual allegedly has a history of resisting arrest, and the police officer has responded that this emergency takedown was consistent with police procedure, and that, again, the individual resisted arrest, Um, The officer is being investigated. Meanwhile, the individual has been charged with aggravated assault of a police officer. So, again, this has generated a lot of um, questions about whether this is an example of excessive force by the police officer. Certainly, from a layman's perspective, the video looks serious. It looks maybe like it is too much force. But again, there's always two sides to these stories. We've covered them extensively on our show. Tina, you've seen the video. I have many what your, times. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I have to agree with Mayor Lightfoot. I found it really disturbing. I have a hard time. I mean, I was actually shocked that he is around and about and functioning because it looked like his head hit the curb pretty hard. Um, and when you, I mean, I agree with you that we've seen these cases before and ultimately it's very fact specific, but I have to agree with Mayor Lightfoot that the video was disturbing. It seemed like excessive force was being used. Commissioner, the, um, individual suffers allegedly from schizophrenia, according to his attorney. Um, he also licked the face of the officer, um, which Jesse Jackson said is an example of his mental illness. What are your thoughts uh, having viewed this video now, I'm sure? Well, I think, I mean, just talking to the fact that this gentleman has schizophrenia, um, you know, when we're looking at the charges that he is possibly facing, I think um, if I'm doing my legal analysis correctly, I think the first question that comes to mind is if he had the mental capacity to actually intend to do what he was accused of doing. Um, it's my understanding, too, he was intoxicated, so I don't know if that also affects the idea of capacity, but um, I agree with you, Tina. I think the video is very hard to watch, um, and I agree with Mayor Lightfoot on this. Um, unfortunately, I think the Chicago Police Department faces a lot of extra scrutiny right now, um, and I think it's probably best to err on the side of caution and relieve the officer of his duties until um, they can complete their investigation. So, I mean, he has been relieved of his, of his duties. The FOP said that the actions were justified. He should be reinstated um, immediately. Again, the video is compelling. On the other hand, none of us in this room, at least, know what it's like to be a police officer out on the front lines dealing with someone who's clearly intoxicated, clearly abusive, has a history of doing this before. And, you know, if you talk to any cop, they'll tell you they don't know what they're, the you know these people are going to do. Um, and you have to err on the side of taking precautions necessary. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, like everybody else here, I think when if you read the article and you sort of look at the alleged facts, you can sort of look at the perspective of the uh, police officer. But this just shows you how compelling video is and maybe why things like body cams and, and, and sort of other video technology is so important because you see the video and you don't have to be a lawyer or a police officer to know that that was just egregious conduct. And, you know, yeah, sure. If, if, if I'm on the street and someone does this t- stuff to me, I might do things that I wouldn't want to do in a normal situation, but I'm not a police officer. I'm not trained in de-escalation in dealing with people with mental health disabilities. I, 
One of our hospitals is a behavioral health hospital. People have issues in this country, severe issues. And our police officers should be trained and held to a higher standard to address people who, who may clearly have a uh, psychiatric episode. One clear positive takeaway, I think, is that the video was released quickly, right? We don't have a Laquan McDonald situation again where it took, you know, quite a while for the video to be released. And we saw, you know, the, 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 um, what happened in the wake of that. I think tied into this, we were talking earlier, Tina, is uh, Mayor Lightfoot yesterday fired uh, the police superintendent here, Eddie Johnson, in Chicago, yeah. citing, you know, some issues, including this, you know, in, in the situation where he was slumped over in his car. Right. And it wasn't quite reported correctly. And maybe there's a cover up. And the inspector general, um, in fact, released a report that Mayor Lightfoot used to support his firing, saying that he basically lied to her. So. The big picture is not a great look, continue, you know, continuing to be not a great look for Chicago police. Uh, this is in the wake, of course, of the consent decree involving the judicial, you know, the, um, the Department of Justice, which is they're lagging way behind. There was a report recently uh, released where, you know, CPD is not meeting the standards that the Department of Justice has laid out. So continue to be a bad look for Chicago. But moving on uh, to our next story, we are talking about Duncan Hunter. Uh, speaking of elected officials who may not be completely on the up and up. We're very familiar with, unfortunately, here in Chicago, um, present company, of course, excluded, but we've got some elected officials who have had some problems over the last few years. And this is a case um, in California where Duncan Hunter, who is a congressman, who has been very vocal in the past about his innocence. He was indicted by the Department of Justice about a year ago for um, abusing campaign funds. And, you know, it was very interesting how I remember the case because we covered it. And he said, oh, I look forward to the trial and this is all nonsense. Well, it turns out it wasn't. And he pled guilty yesterday to these charges. Um, and, you know, I was just, you know, you never, every time you hear one of these stories, you think, how could this happen again? Locally here, we saw, you know, Jesse Jackson Jr. Speaking of Jesse Jackson, his son had similar charges, spent a small amount of time in, in jail, but was using campaign funds for things like Michael Jackson glove and for, you know, clothing. Well, here again, Duncan Hunter um, has pled guilty to using about $250,000 in campaign, campaign funds for all sorts of personal things, fast food, uh, clothing, um Three extramarital affairs. Uh, his wife was also, his ex-wife was also indicted. He said yesterday that the reason he finally pled guilty, well, he gave three reasons, his three children. I guess he wasn't thinking of the kids when he was using all these funds. It's only once he was caught that he thought that that was a good time to, you know, put them, uh, put their interest um, in front of his own. But, you know, I'm glad that this stuff gets exposed and also sad and, you know, depressed about the fact that this continues to go on, at least this is not Chicago, though. Right. That's, California. That's like the one good thing about this, right? Yeah. I agree with you. It's unfortunate. And I it leaves me scratching my head, you know, asking myself, how is it that these things continue to happen? Because it's really hard to do anything these days without leaving some type of a fingerprint. Whether it's a physical fingerprint or an electronic fingerprint, it's really hard to believe that folks think, especially when you're a politician or some individual who's taking money from other people. Um, and you're very, you've got very strict guidelines on how you're supposed to use it and not use it. And it, it just may, leaves me scratching my head. Ahmed, surprise that this stuff still goes on or this not at all. This completely infuriates me reading this kind of article. You know, yeah. we've, we've like a society, we've probably talked for like three years about Colin Kaepernick and, 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 you know, the knee and what that means to, disrespect to our flag or our country or democracy and i'm not trying to argue either way how you feel about it i think there's good perspective on each side but this this story will go away in a week and this person what what more harm can you do to democracy than basically using campaign funds for your own um own own use and and, and being corrupt i just it that's a failing institution it's corruption and those people should be put away for a long time that's my perspective you probably get like 10 years for for also like i, I think this I remember this article because, like, I think he last year he like blamed it on his wife mm -hmm. or allegedly blamed yeah. it on yes. his wife. Yes, so he should get ten years for for the wife thing and, and for every of his Yet children. Yeah, she apologized. I think is using him as, a, as an excuse for well, his conduct. Listen, bringing it to a story we all know, Blagojevich. You know, we always continue to cover that because that is one of the you know most important cases of political corruption in history, given the amount of years that he was sentenced to, and we compare the two. 
I've been very vocal over the last five years on this show about how I thought that was an excessive punishment for someone who talked about doing things. This is someone who actually did things, spent, yeah. you know, public money, campaign money on ridiculous things for his own, you know, personal use or looking at Jesse Jackson Jr. He spent, what, six months in jail. So, you know, different standard there. But, Commissioner, this is something that I know you're very interested in because you've got the highest standards and, you know, you're a public figure. How does stories like this affect how you do your job? Yeah, you know, um, when I first read this, first, um, just point of clarification, I'm appointed, not elected. But regardless, um, I agree with all of you. I, I think it's so disappointing to see um, government officials um, abusing uh, their responsibilities and abusing um, a lot of this campaign funds that they uh, are lucky to have. Um, and I, I think it puts a really bad light on uh, the good folks that do want to work for government. And I, for, for me personally, I just can't figure out what is so hard about doing the right thing the first time and always? Um, you know, I've been in government now since 2014. And, um, you know, you take an oath and there's ethics. And, you know, for, for those of us that are all lawyers, um, it's the same thing. I just, I don't understand it. It's disappointing. Tina, Utah. Yes. Ludus I love law. this story. Free the, free the nipple. <laughs> It's a free the nipple movement. I'm not. That's not my term. That's an actual. I'm surprised you didn't walk in with t-shirts saying free the nipple movement. <laughs> free the nipple. Tell us the story. So imagine you've got a man and a woman who are in in Utah in their Salt Lake City garage trying to put insulation in, and they got really sweaty and itchy, and so they decided, I think it's time to start stripping our clothes off. Um, and apparently you've got, you know, this woman has her stepkids who come by also. They're the children of her husband. And um, she has no top on when the kids come by. So the children's mother catches wind of this. And she decides to report her husband's new wife saying that she is violating a lewdness law that exists in Utah where a woman is not able to expose her breast below the top of the nipple. So we have the ACLU involved in this case who is asking the judge in Utah to find that the lewdness law unconstitutionally treats women differently than men. So um, if this woman gets convicted, she is going to have to register as a sex offender. So that's actually it's no seri- joking it's matter. Serious stakes, and she's relying on the Tenth Circuit, um, which covers Utah yes. decision that overturned the ban on topless uh, in in Denver, in right? Denver, exactly, Fort Collins. So there's actually a, a lot of jurisdictions that have overturned similar. Uh, laws that make public um, toplessness of females illegal. There are many states and many jurisdictions that still make that illegal. So, of course, the question is, what is the difference? In today's society, should these laws still be on the books? Um, And as I mentioned, there's a a group that's been around a while called Free the Nipple that advocates for equal treatment of toplessness by men and women. And I think the argument that the 10th Circuit put forth makes a lot of sense that in today's society, um, you know, sexualizing women's breasts over men's breasts is an antiquated concept, right? Right. I mean, it, it really makes no sense when you think about it that someone somewhere decided that men should be treated differently than women. I think, of course, in today's environment, that's an special, especially salient point given what we're seeing across the board. So, what are your thoughts on this, Commissioner? I guess I'll start. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I I read this and I was a little shocked myself. Um, so, the first thing that came to my mind, um, I feel like the fact that she's facing having to register as a sex offender is a little excessive. And so, I think the first legal question is: Does the punishment truly fit? I guess the crime, if, if it's truly a crime, but, um, and the second thing that came to my mind was, um, you know, taken to its most logical extreme, a law like that really impacts women who, uh, breastfeed in public. Uh, and I think that that is a little unfair. Um, and so I don't know. I thought it was also interesting that, um, it was the ex-wife, I think, who, yes, who brought, the complaint? Yeah, I don't think any, I, I, I bet there's a lot of tension there, and my guess is right. that that had a big part in the complaining. I just thought topless work, was it painting or kind of, what were they putting up? 
They're putting up insulation and it got sweaty and itchy, right? All uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Poor judgment. I mean, just put the shirt on regardless. <laughs> Should you be doing that topless anyway, man or woman? It's a little uncomfortable. What, what are your thoughts on this, Ahmed? I, I, I'm like you. I'm in favor of everybody wearing a shirt, basically, man or female. <laughs> uh, you know, all men yeah. out there, keep your shirts on. Um, I see. Yeah, I see way too much. To, to me, this isn't. Skin. You know, isn't so much about the 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 equity thing. To me, just the law seems a little absurd and the penalty for it. Um, you know, because there's a lot of because this is about private. It's not even about the public part of the of the act. It's the private part, and so. Certainly can see many situations where someone has a woman has to take off her shirt to breastfeed or anything like that, and the repercussions for it seem uh, uh, out of line with the intent of me, what the statute was trying to get. All at. right, so we've got some sports stories. Uh, you guys, football fans, college football fans, pro sports, kinda. pro, kinda. Pro. You're uh, you went to Indiana, I saw. Yeah, Having a renaissance year for the uh, Hoosiers no. there, and not so much. Yeah, no. Are we, are we Bears fans on our <laughs> big Bears fans? Bears fans, big, big yeah. Bears of course. Fan. Maybe turn the corner six and six. Maybe big win against Dallas a couple nights from now. Um, I, I wish. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Well, we've got a story involving um, an NFL player who's been suspended for betting on football. Yes, which we haven't seen in a long time. No, we haven't. And it's at times like these, I wish that Sammy was with us. Yeah, our our sports betting guy for sure. Yeah. So. Word broke a few days ago that defensive back Josh Shaw from the Arizona Cardinals has been suspended through the 2020 season after betting on different league games on multiple occasions this past season. Um, you know, he's been, he's been on, I think, injured reserve for the past few weeks, um, maybe even months and, um, it's pretty cut and dry that when you're part of the NFL, as Roger Goodell said regarding the suspension, that when you are affiliated with the NFL, if you work with the NFL in any capacity, you are not allowed to bet on NFL football. Now, what's interesting is that um, there are certain states where you are allowed to bet on Sports, for example, in Las Vegas, there was some speculation that he may have been actually betting on games in Las Vegas, and I think that may have actually been confirmed. Uh, he can't do it in Arizona, where he plays, and you can't do it in California, where he's from. It's just very unfortunate. The rules seem pretty cut and dry in this respect. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court um, legalized gamblings on sports um, <coughs> last year, which we covered on the show. Uh, they said that the states could decide whether they should legalize gambling. As you mentioned, Nevada is not one of those states. Um, so I think he might have got confused and thought, hey, now it's you know free reign to bet on sports. Again, we cover sports stories all the time. And from a legal perspective, it's important to remember that the law and the rules of a particular sports league have nothing to do with each other. Right. Um, there are personal conduct uh, rules that the NFL has that are among the strictest of any organization. And that's all been upheld in court. So they have the right to say that something that is otherwise legal is not permissible. And courts across the board have upheld that because it's the NFL and they have a lot of power and they have the right to determine how their brand and how their product will be applied by their employees. So even assuming that he had the legal right to bet on uh, on football, which he didn't, but assuming he thought he did, and maybe there's some intent issue, NFL could do what they want, right? Yeah, you I, guys? I agree. I think um, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, for for me, it kind of reminded me of the Duncan Hunter situation. Um, it's one of those professions that I think are, uh, for obvious reasons, held to higher standards. Um, so I'm wondering why the article, though, discussed, I don't know if it was background information or trying to minimize the fact that he was betting and there was no insider information or he was on the injured reserve list. I'm not quite sure what that has to do with the fact that he was betting. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a no-brainer to Well, me. I think traditionally with sports, and, you know, how Pete Rose got in trouble, for example, the most you know famous example of someone being penalized for a sports betting is you don't want someone betting against their own team and then using the tools that they they have because they're a manager or a player to throw the games. Because, you know, going back to the Black Sox era, which we're all familiar with here in Chicago, um, you know, players have been accused of throwing games or shaving points in exchange for the, you know, money they would win from from betting. So I think that's the relevance. You know, the, the NFL was quick to point out that he had no insider information. And even though he bet against his own team, 
he he didn't avail himself of those tools. Um, but you know, every sports league is hypersensitive to the idea that they'll be there. You know, it'll be called into question whether these games are in fact um, legitimate because someone might be you know betting on them. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with everybody here. Um, the NFL has. I think a, a good reason to prohibit all of its players from doing. It. Listen, I mean, sports gambling is is sort of uh, a lot of states are passing laws to allow it, and I think the more and more that it's out there, the more and more I think the NFL, if you want to sort of govern and make sure that you don't have a sort of corrupt enterprise, uh, you want to make sure that no one's betting on it. Any yeah, player, we don't think that because yeah, legalized sports betting is becoming normalized that the leagues will ease up, right? I mean, there's no question that they won't allow players to bet just because it's now legal. I, I think it's the opposite. They should they yeah. should be even more strict right. because, uh, you know, these the, you know, the bad actors are everywhere. They're not just in Vegas. They'll be in every state that sort of uh, allows for it. You know, in Europe, they have a different perspective when it comes to sports gambling. I mean, on their on their jerseys, a lot of soccer teams, football teams, they'll have the, a betting company on there. So, But they also have a lot of uh, you know, in Italy, especially where a lot of uh, gambling issues with players and stuff like that. So I think the league, the NFL in this case, at least has a, uh, a, a right to, uh, uh, to be more strict on it. On a related note, if you do want to meet Pete Rose and ask him about his, uh, gambling, he's right there at the Mirage, uh, in Vegas at the shops. He's there every day of the week. And the good news is there's not a huge line to uh, to see Pete Rose anymore. So <laughs> sounds like you've like, met Pete Rose. That's sad. It makes available. me sad. Plenty of tickets. No, great guy. Um, another sports story is uh, involving Terrell Pryor, who is a former Ohio State star. Um, has played in a couple di- on a couple of different te- teams around the NFL. Most recently, the Browns, and um, he was arrested after an altercation in a Pittsburgh apartment. Uh, a couple days ago, involving an altercation after an altercation with his girlfriend, who actually got charged with criminal attempted homicide and aggravated assault. He got charged with simple assault, um, and this was about four thirty a.m. And she stabbed him, right? And uh, there was a lot of blood, according to the police report, um, as you could imagine from being stabbed in the belly. Um, her mugshot. We love to cover mugshots on the show. We've we've done extensive ones and. You know, she's smiling in the mugshot, uh, which is interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, she was charged with attempted homicide after this altercation. Uh, Tina, what are your thoughts on this case ripped from the headlines? Not sure what there is to really opine on. on well, this one. I, I mean, I just, again, it just seems like there are more and more of these cases of of athletes getting into bad situations. And it's unfortunate. I mean, I think that they were probably in a very heated conversation and just, you know, really sort of egged each other on and it escalated out of control. He's, it sounds like from what I read, he's lucky to be alive at this point. Yeah. Um, I forgot to ask you guys your favorite Taylor Swift songs from the earlier story. Do you have a favorite, uh, Taylor, uh commissioner is very uh, shocked by that question. Wasn't prepared for that one. I'm being told to say uh, <laughs> <laughs> by shake who? it off. Who are we? Oh, shake it off. All right. <laughs> I, mean, I, I have no, no I cannot t- tell no you favorites. a, I love a Taylor Swift song. Yeah. Shake it off. There you go. Oh, we're having two two shakes. We, <laughs> have, we have three shake, shaking it oh off here. Come on. Come on. <laughs> All right. Let's keep moving here on Legal Face Off. Lots to cover. We've got a story involving um, Another former football player, believe it or not, Sam Hunt actually played football in college, and he is a Nashville star. Has had a couple of big hits. Um, your body is a back road, I think, is one of yeah, them. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't and know then, if that's uh, a is, is that a compliment like or an that. insult? I, mean, I don't want to know. Body like a I think back it depends road. on what that back road looks like. What's the other one? Yeah, the first song. Um, uh, you know, house party. So he was arrested last week for DUI. He blew a point uh, one seven three. The legal limit in Tennessee is .08. Uh, he was arrested and charged. Um, he um, he has apologized, of course. He was swerving in and out of his lane. He had bloodshot eyes and smelled of an obvious odor consistent with alcoholic beverage. couple of side stories to this. He has written a song called Something to Do with Alcohol. Where is it? Hang on. He wrote a song called Drinking Too Much huh. a few years ago. Must have been autobiographical. Yeah, maybe not a great song well, to write. Predictive. He is a country star, right? That's right. So that's I, right. I think it's, it's never in the, yeah. the lane of themes uh, sometimes. It's never songs. a happy story in a country <laughs> song. And did you see, uh, Commissioner, did you see the sad uh, letter written by this nine-year-old fan 
This no, little girl not. wrote a uh, a heartfelt, handwritten letter to Sam Hunt saying that her dad had actually been involved in a uh, accident. He lived, but he was involved in an accident involving a, a DUI. And please don't do that again, according to this young wow. fan. Wow. Yeah. Tina, why do these celebrities continue to uh, commit crimes? I mean, thankfully for our show, they do because we've got a lot of good content. <laughs> but uh, well, I mean, I think part why, of it, Tina? Why? why, why, why? Well, I think some of it is uh, obviously there's a certain segment where it's the intentional committing of a crime. Um, but I think in other instances, like DUIs, for example, people have substance abuse problems, and it manifests itself in things like DUIs. I'm not sure what his particular situation is, um, but people are grappling with inner demons, and it manifests itself in different ways, unfortunately. Commissioner, do you think that celebrities think that they, because of their status, could get away with more, and as a result, take more chances, like getting in a car after you've you know drank a lot? I, I do think that there probably is some truth to that. Um, celebrities, unfortunately, glamorize things like drinking and being bad boys or whatnot. And so uh, I'm not sure if that was the case here. But, um, you know, I think either way, I he's lucky it wasn't worse. Um, For sure. It, it's 2019. Use Uber and Lyft. I mean, yeah. I mean, unless you're banned from these these technologies i don't i don't get it i don't have much sympathy for for people obviously of a substance abuse issue that I, I i understand that but get an uber get in the lift yeah no question um tina final story here on our almost christmas episode it's not quite our holiday episode no it's not but we like to you know have a teaser here that's right uh on holiday parties for every holiday here on legal face off we cover Different themes we've covered, you know, the uh, lawsuits involving haunted houses on Halloween. Now you have to be concerned with legal implications from holiday parties, right? Yes. Why is that, Tina? Well, because you have people who do really crazy stuff. Um, the Economist just ran a story recently going through a whole litany of what actually senior leaders in their organizations do at their holiday How old like parties. a werewolf was my favorite. That was my favorite. I love that. Is that, that. wrong? Is that frowned upon at most holiday parties? I, 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 kind of nitpicky, isn't it? Which is better, that or uh, breaking an ankle while trying to break dance? Mm-hmm. There's always the Elaine move that we all witnessed and loved from... <laughs> From Seinfeld, I would have loved to have been there when um, the guy announced his resignation. Oh, I'm out of here, <laughs> sons of bitches! Tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I thought it was yeah turning a dance contest into a brawl. That must have been fun. But we, there's some real legal issues, right? I mean, oh, there's absolutely as an legal employer, issues. Um, and you're obviously a member of your firm's uh, management. Um, what do you do to make sure that you know, there's no liability for your company or companies that you represent. How do you prevent people from getting hurt, filing lawsuits, all that kind of stuff? Well, obviously, the safest thing to do would be to not serve alcohol at all. But a lot of folks don't want to make that decision. What I've seen is firms don't get like Sam my, Hunt to drive you home from the right, party. Exactly. Um, I've actually seen some some firms make the decision to host the holiday party on premises. So, for example, my firm does the holiday party in a really nice conference area at the firm. Uh, when you hire real bartenders, make sure that the bartenders are told when to stop serving and to report any folks that are acting like they're intoxicated, providing rides home to people who end up, you know, feeling like they may not feel comfortable getting on the subway or driving home. So there are steps that can be taken. Um, it seems though, I've been doing this now for 25 years, and it seems like every holiday party I go to, there's always that one person that, that has one, to do something that's inappropriate. That one guy. Or gal. Yes. <laughs> it can be a woman. Ahmed, you've been in-house. You've also been in private practice. Oh. Any crazy stories from holiday parties uh, in the not, past? Not that I want to share. Yeah. I mean, certainly, <laughs> I, I'm fortunate in that, that I work with a great group of people who are professionals and and, and know how to uh, handle uh, if they're drinking, how to handle their uh, their liquor. Law firm day is a little different uh, sometimes, but um, I love this sort of story because I think the holiday party is a great a great 
time, uh, great environment to learn a little bit more about your coworkers. Yes, too much uh, maybe. Yeah, and an employer, you can TMI. weed out some of your employees. And yeah. as an employee, you might realize maybe this isn't the place for me to work, given some of the conduct of the people out there. Commissioner, you used to work at a place called the Illinois Workers' Compensation Commission yes. as an arbitrator, famous for their holiday parties and some of the... Is that so? Well, <laughs> before your time. Yeah. Um, I could remember days when I, I wasn't privy to these, but there's a famous story of the Thompson Center and there was a what a, a pool there in the uh, atrium where someone got into a fight and, and fell in have you heard this a fountain i should say i have not there's that famous story but yeah that was a notorious holiday party for a year before i think they cleaned it up thanks to people like you maybe but <laughs> that's right that's right yes. well you know i this one is probably my favorite story i mean this to me has problems written all over it i mean i think the best solution is just not have one at all that's mm. just but that's <laughs> that's what they call grinch <laughs> no that's just i mean there's so many you're issues. disinvited to the illegal face-off party <laughs> there's just so many problems uh i mean first of all you have workers compensation issues um then you have you know whether it's voluntary if you have it on site i mean there's liability issues there you have it off site um I, I also feel like if you start giving rides home now you've agreed to undertake to take care yes. of them it's just it, it just brings up too much. But I agree with you, Tina. I think maybe starting with just no alcohol uh, and making it something voluntary and um, it's probably the best practice. Well, you're officially invited, both you are, to the, <laughs> what, fifth annual Legal Face-Off Podabration. Yeah. Following our next podcast, uh, details to follow. We will send you the invites. Hope you can make it. And uh, Is it a dry party? No, the opposite. Are you crazy? <laughs> Everything that happened in this article will happen at our party and more. You're, you're officially you on legal notice. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, we're not your employer. Uh, how about uh, favorite uh, holiday movie, favorite holiday song as we enter the holiday season? Commissioner? Oh, oh, oh. Mine is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. That's mm, always been my favorite. Very I can good, watch classic. that thing. Yeah. Ahmed? Oh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Okay. Tina? Favorite movie, Christmas story, favorite song, Do They Know It's Christmas? Ah, Band-Aid. Band-Aid. Very good. Awesome. I'm a big Die Hard fan. Of course, Die Hard oh. generates the debate about whether it's a holiday movie or not, but I think it is. Um, for Tina Martini, Ben Anderson, Sam Panianovich, who's not here, we'd like to thank very much our guests, Ahmed Elgenzuri from Edward Elmhurst Healthcare and Maria Bocanegra from the Illinois Commerce Commission. Thank you both for joining us on Legal Face-Off. Thank, Thank you. And as we sign out, team, we've got a, a plug here from a friend of the show. Um, this weekend only, our friend Colt Julian, who is in a little show called Heartbreak Hotel in Vegas that I'm affiliated with, is performing as Elton John here in Chicago, three nights only at the Apollo Theater uh, up in Lincoln Park in my neighborhood. Colt's an amazing performer, does a great Jerry Lee Lewis in our show, and does a great Elton John in the show called Wonderful Crazy Night. It's the Chicago premiere this weekend. Check it out. Ben's going to give us a little sample as we close up the show. And we'll see you in two weeks on Legal Face-Off. See ya. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me right again to find.